Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Jesus declared himself to be king, but he does not allow you to put him in your political box. Christians, however, tend to get stuck in one of two political ditches. We either privatize our faith or we make it partisan. We think religion and politics should be separate and never intermingle, or we align so tightly with a political party that we conflate the gospel with a human agenda. In a supercharged political climate, the new book Political Gospel explores what it means for Christians to have a biblical public witness by looking to scripture, the early church, and today. Should we submit to governing authorities or subvert them? Are we to view them as agents of the dark forces or entities that promote order? In these pages, we'll see what Christians uh, live in a paradox. We'll see that Christians live in a paradox, and we'll see how to follow Christ our King right into the political craziness of our day. And here to talk about his new book, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World, is Dr. Patrick Schreiner. He's an associate professor of New Testament and biblical theology right here at Midwestern Seminary. He's also a pastor at Emmaus Church and author of numerous books, including Political Gospel. Patrick, how are you, brother? Good. Good to be with you, Jared. You know, we're we're Skyping, but we're right down the road from one another. So why are we doing this? <laughs> Either one of us wanted to go to the office. That's why. That's exactly right, because I like to wear my sweatpants. <laughs> yeah, well, you're you're technically on sabbatical, right? So you're not going to the office anyway. I'm not going anyway. So I literally yeah. wear comfy clothes every single day. Yeah. And, and there's no chapel this week, I discovered. So I thought I was being naughty by working from home today because um, normally when I'm in town and there's chapel, I go, even if I don't have classes to teach, mm-hmm. I go in because, you know, I want to be in the, the chapel community. And, and I thought, oh, you know, there's so much I need to get done. And and so I stayed at home today. And then I learned there wasn't chapel this week. So you are justified. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't have to feel naughty about it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, I'm glad you're here. I'm excited about this book. Um, I have to ask you, first of all, like, where do you get the guts to even write about something like this at this time? It, You know, if I was going to write a book about politics, I think I would wait until there was some. I don't know how you can predict such a thing, but until the the waters were a little bit calmer. I don't even know if we'll even have you know such a time in our future. But um, what what prompted you to write this and 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 why now? Yeah. So I most of my books that I've done in the past have been more not hot topics. Let's put it that way. Right. I I write on books like Matthew or Acts or the Ascension or some topic within the Bible. But at the same time, like my life, as you mentioned at the beginning, I have one foot in the church and one foot, foot in the academy. And as I was looking at the American church, um, really these past uh, six, eight years or so, uh, I really care about discipleship in every area. And I think it would be an understatement to say we probably need to do some more work on the political discipleship front. And so I was trying to step into that space and and really help with political discipleship because I am concerned about the division that Christians we see amongst Christians over politics. 
And so what, what do I bring to this conversation? I, I didn't study political science in college. I'm not a political theorist. I'm not actually an expert on political theology. But what I do a lot of is teach the Bible. And I think the best way to disciple people is typically bring them to texts and to bring them what Jesus did and Paul did and the early church did. And as I kind of looked at the political conversations that are happening, it seems like people would run to um, Genesis 9, Romans 13, Mark 12, paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, Romans 13 is about submitting to the government. Genesis 9 is kind of about uh, human order and governing systems and natural law. And I just was really convinced that the Bible has a lot more to say about our political engagement than we imagine. And that's really all over the scriptures. I, I really look at the New Testament more than the Old Testament, but I wanted people to return to the scriptures and really follow Jesus's call in terms of how we are to engage with the political system. What many people forget is that Jesus and Paul lived under the Roman Empire. So when we do kind of historical studies, we often do Jewish backgrounds, which are hugely important. Obviously, we have the Old Testament if you're, do, if you're studying the New Testament, but we forget that they did live under this Roman Empire and that many of their words were not just religious words, but were political words. And so, yeah, I just wanted to point people to those resources and that idea with the aim of stepping into this conversation of how do we as Christians interact with politics? How do we engage faithfully as Christians? So it, so it is a, ultimately a discipleship issue for me. The reframing of what it means to be political, I think, is really important in your book, because there is sort of a, you know, as the as the back cover copy kind of mentions, there's there's sort of two ditches. There's the Christian who conflates everything with politics and in a sense even merges their Christian identity with their political tribe such that their political tribe becomes a litmus test for Christian orthodoxy. But then there's those on the other side that are like, no, there is a hermetically sealed off category, politics and religion and, and never the twain shall meet. And so you, you've done sort of a, a work of kind of re I don't know if redefining is the word, but, but talk a little bit about how Christ's teaching is political, how the coming of the kingdom mm -hmm. has political implications. How are you using the word political, especially yeah. as it, as it pertains to the way of Christ? Yeah. So as I was just kind of looking at the, especially American scene in terms of politics, you summarized it well. And in one sense, I thought, well, some people feel like their faith is a private thing and politics is a public thing. And so, as you said, you just kind of seal off your faith from your public views. And, uh, you know, we have separation of church and state. And so some of it tends even from that, I believe, in separation of church and state. But you can take that a little too far to believe that your religious or your uh, personal religious views shouldn't have any say in the public square. And I don't I don't think that's actually what the American founders uh, meant, uh, nor how we are to interact, nor is it possible to interact in that way in any sense. But then the opposite side, as you mentioned, was that we begin to think that our faith is so partisan that, you know, God's kingdom is represented by this political party or that political party. 
And I felt like both of those are not the way to engage with this. That rather, I mean, I use I'm using three P words, hopefully for memory's sake, right? There's one privatized, there's one partisan. And I said, no, let's recover the historical sense of the word political. Our faith is fully political and political comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. And so political simply means the activities associated with the organization governance of a people. It's a public reality. So when I say the gospel is political, Christianity is political, I don't mean it's partisan. I actually mean that it's fully political, that it's about public life. It's about enacting justice, the arranging of common goods, um, the ordering of society. And so this is really important because when we come to the scriptures, so often it's easy as evangelicals to think Jesus came with a message about our, our hearts and our souls. And I actually don't want to deny that that's true. There's an, there's an individualistic or individual reality to the Gospels and the Gospel message itself. It's very clear that Jesus is calling individuals to repent and believe in him. But the danger with that kind of emphasis within evangelicalism is that we forget that Jesus announced that the kingdom, which is a public reality, a new city that is coming, that he formed um, new communities around him, that Paul went and planted churches and churches, ecclesia, um, another word that I think is a political word, is a body politic. I said in my book, you know, Paul didn't go to prison and end up dying, going through shipwreck and storms so that we could go to Starbucks and have organic relationships <laughs> with one another or white chocolate mochas. No, we, he, he, he sacrificed really his life because he believed he was forming a new society and that new society is the church. And so I, in the first century, religion and politics were not two separate things. Um, they, they intermingled and they were actually tied together. And so when Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Really, I go through all of those words, gospel, kingdom, believe. And I say all of these actually have political resonances. And so to kind of just reframe what our true politic is, is that Jesus came with a fully political message. He was crucified as king. That what that means is our first loyalty is to, to Christ's kingdom. Our first loyalty is to our supreme sovereign, which is Jesus Christ himself. And the implications of that is that we will be critical. And I, it's not the only word we could use, but we will be critical of every other kingdom. Um, I think that that's what the scriptures say. It, it's I mean, I could talk for a long time. I, I'd love to hear feedback on all this, but um, <laughs> it's so easy. I think especially within probably the circles that I run in to think Romans 13 is the full kind of political theology that we need. And, you know, the Bible just doesn't work that way. There's so many stories that show Daniel, like, nah, I'm not going to obey you, King. The guys in Acts, the apostles, they're deciding not to obey the ruling authorities. You have Paul coming into different cities and riots are starting as he's preaching Jesus, the Messiah. Then they're saying, hey, you're going against the decrees of Caesar. You have Revelation 13 that says the government stems from the dragon who is Satan himself. And so it's like one way I like to put it is how do Romans 13 and Revelation 13 fit together? One says they're God's servant and another says they stem from Satan. Well, that's the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? The paradox of the Christian life is both of those things are true at the same time. They are God's servant who are to promote peace and order and prosperity, I think. But the dark forces also use them to spread chaos. 
And so as they are following God's design and order for what they are to do, we submit to them. But as they are spreading chaos and really following the dark spiritual forces, we subvert them because we are for ultimately another kingdom. And so, yeah, really my aim in here is to say, read the Bible with your political lens on, not just your personal lens and recognize our true politic is the gospel. Our true politic is Christianity. And that's where we must start. And what that means is not that you need to necessarily vote in a certain way. That's not what I'm getting at in this book. I'm not getting into policy issues, issues of immigration, who you should vote for as much as saying, let's lay a foundation for how to think about politics. And I would also say the way to be the most political person is to go to church and to listen to the word preach and to take the ordinances and to interact with your community. Because I think the church is the first political community in one sense, uh, our first as Christians political community. So when people hear me talking about politics, they're like, okay, so what should I do in terms of community service? I say, no, go to church. That's your, that's your first political action. Because what we do in church is we sing songs to our sovereign we remember that we are loyal to him. Uh, we open the scriptures and remember the constitution that he has given us in baptism. We're putting on the jersey of the kingdom of heaven. And in the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves that our sovereign has actually gone out and fought for us by dying for us. And he's given us a pattern to live by. And so I actually want to reframe even the church and what we do as the church as a fully political act. We, we forget in America we have songs that we sing. We have special days that we celebrate. <laughs> and I'm not saying all of those things are, are, are bad. I think there's a good form of patriotism, but it is forming us in terms of our allegiance. And that's exactly what the church does too. Every, every time we gather as the church, it's forming our allegiance and it's reminding us of our true allegiance. And so let's redefine politics. Let's put it back in the, the set, really the center of Christianity. You have, as you mentioned, sort of this interplay between subversion and submission, you mentioned sort of the, I don't know if you'd use the word black or white, but just sort of the, the one dimensional, you know, biblical text approach to, you know, Christians and politics where, you know, Romans 13, we need to submit, we need to honor the emperor or, you know, we need to defy, we need to be like John the Baptist to Herod. And, and usually how those play out is if our guy is in office or not, <laughs> if, yeah. we, if we like the guy or agree with the guy, we urge everyone to honor the emperor. And even if they're doing things that ought to be defied or criticized, but then when it's not our guy in office, suddenly <laughs> we become Daniels and John the Baptists and it's about defiance. So I, I guess my question is, could you tease out just a little bit more how do you know, I mean, you mentioned this a little bit, but you've got a whole chapter on the way of subversion and another whole chapter on the way of submission. You know, maybe this gets us into the the dirty word of, of nuance that, you know, some, <laughs> you know so, some folks do not want us to embrace. But if your eyes are on Christ, you're not going to have a one dimensional posture with the outside world. How do we know? Yeah. Um, when yeah. subversion is called for and when submission is called for. Yeah. You know, it's one of my greatest fears with this book is that people read it exactly. And I'm not saying you're at, you're reading it this way, but in that way that they're like, oh, yes, I totally agree with subversion submission. But what that means is that I subvert the Democrats or the Republicans in, on every turn. And, um, 
And, and really, I'm like, no, no, maybe I wasn't. I need to be clear on this. What I'm saying is that because we have a, a more ultimate allegiance, we submit and subvert to both parties because that's not our, our hope and our hope is not found in them. And so we're critical of every governing system, but at the same time, we're also submissive. So I'll, I'll get, let me get to your question. But what, one thing I like to point out to people, maybe before I do, is that these two realities end up coming together really beautifully on the cross because in Jesus submitting to Rome and even the Jewish nation and their trial over him, by so doing, he actually subverted the Roman Empire and kind of began the end game for all human kingdoms. <laughs> and so I think the cross is kind of our marching orders for our political witness. By being submissive, we end up subverting in, in a strange way. And so it was even hard to write this because sometimes I felt like the two terms were so intertwined with one another that it seems like the New Testament is calling us to this form of martyrdom that ends up being our primary witness, this form of really taking up our cross. And I think that's really what Jesus, I mean, I, I, I said there's more texts than Mark 12 and Romans 13, but I think that's what Jesus and Paul are getting to when they say pay taxes to Caesar, but also remember that God owns everything. In one way, that's legitimizing Caesar. And another way that's saying God put Caesar there. And so he's not that big of a deal. God's the big deal. I think if Caesar ever read that, he would be like, cool. And I'm not really sure what to do with this because I'm supposed to be the sovereign sovereign. I don't like the idea that you just subordinated me. But you also said pay taxes to me. So and that's <laughs> that's actually why I think, you know, when Jesus comes before the Roman rulers, Paul does as well. They're always declared innocent because the Roman rulers are like, you know, I'm not really sure about what you're doing, but I can't find anything wrong with you because you're a really good citizen. So that, that kind of goes into the paradigm of um, submission or subversion. So your main question, though, the harder question is, when do we know when to do this? There's one author who said something to the effect of our, our main form of subversion is to remind our representatives of the truth of their origin and purpose. And I think that's a great way of putting it. In other words, Christians, because of what God has told us in the scriptures, know why we have governing authorities and what they are to do. And Romans 13 is helpful here. They are to punish the evil and to reward the good. Another way to put that is they're to promote peace and flourishing and hospitality and to arrange common goods in a way that provides flourishing for people. And when they stop doing that, or when they start saying, you need to worship me and not God, then we say, you're going beyond your origin and purpose. <laughs> and so um, if you wanna get more specific, I give two categories for justified subversion, and that's governmental violation or neglect or governmental infringement. So government governmental violation is when the government has stopped ordering society and promoting virtue and establishing justice, then you they're no longer doing their duty and therefore we're called to reform them. In other words, it's like a person in authority who's no longer doing what they're called to do. They have thereby forfeited their authority, if that makes sense. Mm. The other, and I'll give you an example, maybe in a minute, uh, a more practical example. I'm giving you categories right now, but governmental infringement is when the government has stepped outside of its God-given jurisdiction. This could or could not involve sin, but 
In other words, when the government, let, let's give a really practical example. If the government said, since we're, we're speaking to church leaders and people in the church, if the government said, this is how I want you to perform the Lord's Supper, <laughs> that's, that's called governmental infringement because that's outside of their authority. I'm, I'm a good Baptist political theorist here. I believe the, the church has been given the keys of the kingdom and the government has been given the sword. And so for the government to say, this is how you're to perform the Lord's Supper, or this is how you are to define, let's, let's make it really practical. This is how you are to define and do marriages. That's outside of their authority. That's beyond their pay grade because God has defined what marriage is, not the government. Now, where it gets really tricky is the government does have something to say about marriage because marriage or children also has to do with uh, society interacting with one another and who to give tax breaks to. And another way to put it is, you know, children ultimately fall under the authority, I think, of their parents. But at the same time, if parents are abusive to their children, the government should step in and do something about that. And so it gets really complicated when there's overlap, doesn't it? (laughs) And we we found this out during COVID, right? Because the government said you shouldn't meet together anymore because of a public health reason. And the church looked and said, wait a second, can you say that? And this is where I think Jonathan Lehman did, did really good work on this during the pandemic. But this is where it got really confusing because I think there was overlap. I think the government did have it was not infringement in one sense because they are concerned with public health. But Christians rightly recognized if they are calling only churches to close and not other organizations, then that would be infringement. (laughs) So I think you have to determine based on the social situation, did the government go beyond their bounds of authority? I think in the States that I lived in, they were calling all businesses to close. That could have been different in different States. I don't, I don't know all the details. So I did feel like they were infringing uh, over their rights. They were saying this is a public health issue and we need you not to meet at this point. But I I recognize that's a really confusing (laughs) example because of that overlap, because Christians are called in Hebrews to meet together. But at the same time, the government is called to promote public health. And so we had overlap. And that's why Christians threw swords at one another, unfortunately. So there's some examples. Maybe the other example I'd give is, and this this will probably make some people mad, but I, I don't think refusing to, during COVID, if we're just going to bring it back to that, refusing to wear a mask is the type of subversion that I'm speaking of. Because I think the subversion that the scriptures speak of is directly advocating for the kingdom of God. And I'm not entirely sure. I haven't heard a good argument for I didn't wear a mask because I was showing that I was a Christian. Maybe there was a good argument for that, but it was hard for me to reconcile those two. So I think there's a little confusion of American freedom with Christian freedom there. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the argument that I mostly heard in relation to that was not about Christian witness, but more about just sort of my bodily rights and, you know, my freedom of expression and the government doesn't have a right to tell me what to do and that sort of thing. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, we don't have a a million years left in this recording, but, and this is a huge topic, but on the question of Christian nationalism, which right now is 
as Mugatu would say, it's so hot right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it would be it, it would almost feel tone deaf not for me to to ask you about that, given the topic of your book. I know your book doesn't you know totally address this thing, and it's not about this thing, but. Thoughts on the current conversation? Wouldn't all this be solved if we just had a Christian king and <laughs> we had a theocracy? Um, I mean, I guess we do have a Christian king, but I mean, you know, if America was a theocracy and and so yeah. on and so forth. Well, I mean, I think some of this I did do some work on like political theory and political history. If you're a Baptist, I think historically you can't really be a Christian nationalist. If you're from a different denomination, you might lean a little bit more in that way. Uh, but Baptists are very strong on separation of church and state. And so that, that's a whole nother conversation. But I, in my book, I say, I think Christian nationalism, even the term is a confusion of categories. We do have a nation and that's the church. First Peter, chapter is it chapter two or one right says that we are the holy nation and that's speaking to the church and so i think christian nationalism i, I can get to some different different definitions but i think christian nationalism at least the the like kind of popular idea of what it is confuses the time in which we live so if you put the paradigm of we live in the already not yet it means that the city of man exists all at the same time the kingdom of God and the city of God is breaking into this world. And I think Christian nationalism takes those two circles and says, we want to combine those two. But I think what Jesus has called us to in between the times is that both coexist at the same time. The kingdom of God is here and the city of man is here. And actually, we're called to submit to the city of man while at the same time advocating for the kingdom of God. It seems to me that Revelation says Jesus Christ will bring his kingdom here and that he will make us a Christian nation, if that if that's what people are talking about, right? A Christian world, actually, not just a nation. But that seems to be his job. Our job is to witness to that kingdom. So the church is an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom. But we are not trying to take over what the government is doing, nor are we attempting to try to enact Christianity by law. Now, what that doesn't mean is I, I, I'm not saying that Christianity should not continue to have influence on our nation, nor should we promote Christian values. But I think that's different than arguing that we should have a fusion of Christianity with American life. So I do think we have a, a historically uh, Christian morality and founding to our nation. And I do think Christians should advocate for their beliefs. But that is different. And I know we need to we probably could get into more nuances of it. But I do think that is different than saying uh, the government should privilege Christianity or that they should privilege our voice. I, I don't think that's how the founders actually set up a governing system, nor do I think that represents the biblical witness. Well, the book is about public witness in a politically crazy world. It's called Political Gospel. It's by Dr. Patrick Schreiner. It's available from B&H Publishers. It's a, a timely book. In some ways, it'll be a timeless book, perhaps, because of the increasing political polarization in our public life, in, in our national life, and even in the evangelical subculture. So I uh, encourage you to check it out. Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Thanks, Jared. Good to be with you. Yeah, I hope you get some more rest on this uh, sabbatical. Don't forget the word Sabbath is in the word sabbatical. So I'll try to remember that. I'll go take a nap now. <laughs>
Okay, good deal. <laughs> after that exhausting podcast. That's right. <laughs> after all the hate emails, I'm going to get after that. No, <laughs> that's right. Dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.